This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore and I am usually your host. Longtime listeners of the show will know that for the next few weeks, I'll be out on paternity leave, which is obviously a fake word, but I'll be focusing on my family as we celebrate the birth of our first child. So I asked a handful of previous guests and people that I trust who speak really well on faith and mental health, who I know are going to bring some beneficial content. I invited a handful of people to do kind of guest lectures or guest interviews, things like that, to contribute to the show. I'm so excited to share with you today this episode, Dr. Holly Oxhandler, who you might remember from a previous episode. She is our guest host. She's a social work professor at Baylor. She interviews Dr. John Singletary in this episode about the Enneagram, and they talk through a lot of good things about how it relates to our faith journey, helps us understand ourselves and each other, all sorts of things. I'm going to let her do the intro because she kind of introduces John and all that good stuff in the episode. I just wanted to pop in and remind you what was going on in case you got confused why you weren't hearing from me, which let's be honest, it'll be great either way. I'm so excited to have some people I trust doing some episodes for me. So enjoy this episode uh, and here will be your guest host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Welcome back to CXMH. My name is Dr. Holly Oxhandler, and I am your guest host today uh, while Robert Bohr is out during the season with his family. I'm honored to be hosting this episode on the Enneagram and our faith journey, and I have with me Dr. John Singletary, who is a professor and the dean of the Diana R. Garland School of Social Work at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. John received his MDiv from the Baptist Theological Seminary and his MSW and PhD from Virginia Commonwealth University School of Social Work. His interests are primarily in community practice, organization, and leadership. And I have known John for the past three and a half years and have so enjoyed working under his leadership here at the Garland School of Social Work. John is also the person who introduced me to the Enneagram when I first joined our faculty about three and a half years ago. He studies under Suzanne Stabile in her apprenticeship program and is often asked to speak about the Enneagram around the community. John, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I am so grateful to have you. Gladly. This is fun to get to do. And I apologize if one of my first questions to you is, what is your number? <laughs> oh, no. Please don't start with that. <laughs> I probably start too many questions. Oh. Just kidding. I um, really try not to do that to people. <laughs> So I am a two on the Enneagram, um, and I know I mentioned that um, that I have learned a little bit about it from you and from others here, but but especially from you. But I'm going to kick that question back to you <laughs> and have you start with what your number is. <laughs> well, my name is John, and I'm a three. I say it a little tongue-in-cheek as though I'm at an AA meeting, 
but a part of the gift of the Enneagram has been realizing the power that personality has over my life, and sometimes in not such a good and beautiful way. Uh, and being able to separate that from who I know God has created me to be has been part of the gift of the Enneagram in my life. Mm, that's good. Did I miss anything else in the intro about you that you'd like to share? No, I'm sure I'll talk more about family and their numbers maybe as we talk because that's just a part of the fun of thinking about the Enneagram is mm-hmm. how it shapes our family life and other relationships. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. Um, well, why don't you, if you don't mind starting, just kind of giving us a brief overview of the Enneagram, because I'm sure some of our listeners are probably thinking, what is that? Or they've seen it and they see a really funny diagram that they right, might be a bit right. scared of. Yes. <laughs> um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what the Enneagram is and well, I'll unpack a little bit more about what it means to yes. you later. Well, first of all, it's not a pentagram. It's nothing <laughs> to be scared of. It's nothing inherently satanic. It's nine points around a circle, which is all the name means, a diagram of nine. And it's an ancient symbol. And Christians often trace it back to the third and fourth century of our uh, desert mothers and fathers of the faith. But there's conversation around, uh, did... Christians adopt it perhaps a little later than that. Uh, regardless, it is a tool that has become popularized in the past 10 or 20 years, particularly within Christianity, because of the way that it connects conversations about personality with spiritual formation and our spiritual journey. And before that, there wasn't a lot of thought around how your personality shapes your prayer life, and your relationship with God. We just assumed everybody could and would and perhaps should have the same relationship with God. We all pray the same. We all think about our faith journeys the same. But we just know that's not true. People really are different. For a while, people use Myers-Briggs as a way to think about personality differences in faith. But there's nothing inherently Christian about Myers-Briggs. And Enneagram is another personality-type tool that helps us understand personality, similarities, and differences. But with it is this inherent spiritual dimension that really sets it apart from a lot of the other personality tools that are out there. Hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What's that spiritual, What what is that spiritual piece that's so different or distinct from the other yeah. tools? The person who first is credited with writing about the Enneagram uh, was over 100 years ago, and his name is George Gurdjieff, and a man of Middle Eastern descent who traveled the world looking for spiritual resources. And he had identified as a Christian for part of his life. It was kind of a wanderer. And he talked about certain spiritualities that emphasized the heart, perhaps more than other dimensions of life, other spiritualities that were more head-based, cerebral, or cognitive ways of understanding religious experience, and some faith experiences that were more hands-on, or what he sometimes called body-based. And what he really came to was this idea that a fourth way is where we can think about how heart, head, and hands work together to enhance our soul. Mm -hmm. And the connection that that has 
for Christians is when we think about the question that Jesus was asked by the lawyer, what is the greatest commandment? And his response is not just to love God and love your neighbor, but it's to love your God with all of your mind, body, heart, and soul. Now, different versions of the Gospels have those in different orders. But there's something that we've noticed over the years, that thinking about mind and body and heart are different ways of thinking about and talking about thinking, feeling, and doing, Mm -hmm. which are three core dimensions to the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. There are three core dimensions to the psychology of personality. There are three dimensions that are important in organizational literature and well-being. These, These elements of who we are as people show up over and over again. And perhaps a part of what Jesus was saying is loving God with your whole self means we have to pay attention to each of these dimensions. And the Enneagram is one of the few tools that really invites reflection on how each of those dimensions shapes who we are. That's so fascinating. Thank you for that explanation. And I think what's so interesting about that too is how, from my understanding, and and I'd like for you to unpack this a bit more, is that each number is oriented to the thinking, feeling, and doing differently, right? Absolutely. Okay. And it's a little tricky to think about because most Uh of us don't go around talking about our thinking, feeling, and doing selves. Mm. But when we really break down our personality, it really can be understood in those basic dimensions, those basic elements of who we are. And one way to think about it is how do you tend to respond and how do different people tend to respond to both daily situations and also more traumatic, overwhelming situations. And once you think about that, you realize that different people respond in different ways. Mm -hmm. And some people have a more cognitive response. Something overwhelming happens in their life and they, they need to kind of think through it before they act or before they connect with other people. Some people heard that and say, now, wait a minute. How would you not connect with people first? Mm -hmm. There are some people whose first reaction is to check in on people. Mm -hmm. And as a two, you laugh because that's probably (laughs) your go-to response. There are other people who are those gut responders. Their gut tells them what to do. They know in their body what to do. And they're going to act before they think or feel. Mm -hmm. And we can all say, oh, yeah, I kind of see how that's the case. Mm -hmm. Now, something the Enneagram also teaches is not only is one of those uh, our most dominant response to life, but each personality struggles with one of those. Mm-hmm. So some of the gut responders find it really difficult to connect at a feeling level. Well, that happens to be the Enneagram type 8. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are some gut responders who are also pretty in touch with their feelings but it's hard for them to to think through things. Mm -hmm. Well, for what it's worth, that's the Enneagram type one. But every number kind of has this organization that you have to study a little bit to to fully grasp, but how we, without even knowing it, subconsciously approach life in a thinking, feeling, and doing arrangement. Mm. Um, And we're not all the same. And the basic way of thinking about the Enneagram is really just to, to look at the nine numbers and to realize we all wear different glasses in how we approach the world. 
But really behind it all, uh, at a pretty basic level, is this idea that our thinking self and our feeling self and our doing self shape how we respond to most situations. That's so interesting. That's that's good. Um, so you started talking about other numbers. So we've both mentioned that I'm a two and you're a three and you just brought up the eight and the one. So um, it might be helpful for folks to hear kind of a very brief overview of the different numbers. And I know that that is so hard because there's so much complexity to the different numbers and right, there's so right, much right. depth to each of them. Um, I know motivation is a big piece behind each of the numbers, but would could you give us like a brief overview of each of them? I will do my best <laughs> with my apologies to Suzanne Stabile, my mentor, <laughs> who's not a fan of doing this in fewer than several hours. So for me to do it in a few minutes I is going to make her shake her head. <laughs> Sorry, Suzanne. <laughs> But I do think we can give just a quick snapshot. It's hard enough to talk about the Enneagram itself with all of its history and complexities in mm -hmm. two or three minutes, much less the nine types. But one way I can do it briefly is by just reflecting on the, these feeling, thinking, and doing elements of who we are. So I'll, I'll talk about the numbers for who those are the most common characteristics. And I'm not going to start with the one. I'm going to start with the two. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> the Enneagram is, is broken into triad. So it's three groups of three. That's why there are nine types. So the first group of three that I'll mention are the feeling dominant numbers. And the, the feeling dominant number that most people think about is the type two. Mm -hmm. The type two is known for feeling other people's feelings. Mm -hmm. And it's because inherently they, they struggle to, to believe that they're valued or needed or loved just for who they are mm -hmm. and they believe that they're valued more for, for how they uh, can help others and connect with others and relate to others. So they're inherently relational and they're the external feelers. So it's hard for a two to, to ask the question, how are you feeling or what do you need? But they're very attuned to being able well, they can ask it to other people. Yeah, yeah. they're very attuned to asking others that question. But they question, can ask that to themselves. themselves right? Yes, right. that's yeah. right. Yeah. Now, on the other end of that spectrum is the four. The four is the internalized or introverted, sometimes we say, feeler. So they're very attuned to their own feelings. They can absolutely answer the question, what am I feeling? But it's not their go-to to think about or to respond to how other people are feeling. Suzanne tells this story about how fours are one of the only numbers of, on the Enneagram that can uh, be aware of another person's pain and not feel the need to address it. Mm. That they can just sit and absorb the pain and experience the feelings without needing to do something about it. Mm. And that can be a real gift in sitting with someone in a time of care or crisis. Mm -hmm. So the four is internalizing their own feelings. Sometimes they're overwhelmed by their feelings. They have a, uh, one of the, the, the broadest ranges of feelings, a, a very rich emotional life. We see that in kind of dramatic ways in terms of how it's played out. So we might think about the roller coaster of, of emotional experiences that a type four can have in a single day, maybe even a single hour. My middle son is a type four. And we were getting in the car last week, and on the way to the car, he hated me, he hated <laughs> choir, 
He hated music. And we got in the car. I forgot something inside. Went in for it. Came back out. He was listening to music. <laughs> talked about how Aww. music has changed his life. Aww. Choir is the best thing that ever happened to him. <laughs> and he can't wait to be on Broadway. Oh my so goodness. within 10 minutes, this, you know, just dynamic mm-hmm. range of emotions. It makes perfect sense to him. It's a little overwhelming to him. <laughs> but he's not asking how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the middle of that. The type three between the two and the four is overwhelmed by feelings. So sometimes we say we forget our feelings. Or, as Suzanne often says, we set them aside. And we we always plan to pick them back up later, but it's never that easy. We're overwhelmed by them, meaning we don't trust our feelings. And we're overwhelmed by the feelings of others. So we, we go through life without... And sometimes an awareness of other people's feelings are our own and how they impact us. So we don't look like a feeling-oriented number. We look like a doing-oriented number. Mm -hmm. So threes are the go-getters. They're the succeeders and the achievers because we just are always setting those feelings aside. Now, at the same time, feelings play a role in our life, but in a twisted way. We're very image-conscious. Really, the two, three, and four are all pretty image-conscious numbers We all have this kind of shame core, which means we worry about how people perceive us Mm -hmm. and how we worry about letting people down and what their image of us is. And threes are guided by that image. We think we only have value for what we do and how successful we are. And we are, are, are just constantly paying attention to this image of success rather than a healthy engagement of how other people feel, and mm-hmm. what our own feelings mean to us. Mm-hmm. So that's the two, three, and four, and how we approach life from the perspective of feeling. Mm-hmm. Now the five, six, and seven, the next three numbers, do the same thing with thinking. The five is the kind of stereotypical thinker, but they're the introverted thinker. They're collecting information at all times. They're not always sharing that information, but they need to know. They only feel competent when they have information. Sometimes we think of them as hoarders of information or gluttons for information. They want to know. And it's about seeking safety and security, which is common for the five, six, and seven. Mm -hmm. On the other end of that spectrum is the seven. The seven is the extroverted thinker. They're the person with the next big idea. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about this? So they're talking to others about ideas they have for their life. So it's not so much ideas for the life of the seven as much as problem solvers of other people's problems. So extroverted thinking. Now the six is in between. And the six sometimes forgets what they're thinking or is overwhelmed by what they're thinking, just like the three does with feelings. Mm. And so the six sometimes will say is spinning the wheels of their mind by overthinking things. They're engaged in what Suzanne calls unproductive thinking. It's not that they're not smarter intelligent. Five, sixes, and sevens, just because they're in this thinking center or this thinking triad, has nothing to do with intelligence. Mm -hmm. It's just how they respond to life. And sixes respond to life by typically overthinking things. It leads to a sense of perhaps anxiety, sometimes fear. And that's really a part of the life of the five, six, and seven, is afraid that they don't have the right information at the right time to know how to handle Mm -hmm. a situation that comes their way. Mm -hmm. It's not about how people perceive them. It's not about the image they have. 
They don't necessarily feel shame for these things. That's the two, three, and the four. Mm -hmm. The five, six, and the seven wants to be safe and secure. They want to overcome this fear. And the six is at the middle of that. So then the last triad, the last three numbers, are the eight, the nine, and the one. So now we've come back to the one. Mm -hmm. The eight is what we typically think of as the stereotypical gut-oriented number or body number. So they're the extroverted doers. They, they're always doing something. They have this gut-level response to whatever situation is presented to them. They just know what should be done, and they're ready to do it. And if nobody else does it, they're going to run with it. Hmm. I happen to be <laughs> married to an eight. I mentioned that my family would find their way into these conversations. We also have two children who are eights, mm. a 17-year-old son, an 11-year-old daughter. Now, we don't know for sure that those are their numbers. We're a little more confident about the oldest son. And when uh, my wife and my son and I get in a heated conversation, everybody on the block knows. <laughs> uh, we're pretty loud, uh, pretty engaged with each other. Uh, the eights just tend to engage life that way. Mm. Too much of a good thing is never enough, if one, is one of the mantras uh, Suzanne sometimes says about the eights. Mm. Uh, they're not necessarily interested in uh, controlling all things. They just don't want to be controlled by others. Uh, they worry about being betrayed by others. They struggle to trust others because of this concern they have. And a current concern that they have is, um, if they're betrayed and it causes hurt, then they'll be overwhelmed by the, by the anger that they feel in that situation. Mm. But they're pretty comfortable being in touch with the anger that they do have. And they're not afraid of conflict as a result. They're willing to just tell you how it is. They're truth tellers uh, above all else. Uh, they're not the bullies on the playground. They're the people that are making sure other people aren't bullying them. Mm. Or anyone else so they really have this soft spot this mm -hmm. underbelly mm -hmm. uh, that they don't like uh, talking about uh, but they are uh, dedicated to works of justice and making sure that the marginalized in our society are taken care of mm -hmm. on the other side of that spectrum is the one and the one is the is the more introverted doer mm -hmm. now they're still known as an achiever sometimes so they're getting things done but it's more because of this internal voice that they have about the right thing has to be done always. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they're labeled the perfectionist. But it's not because of how they are responding to others externally. It's this, it's, it is this internal voice, mm -hmm. this internal critic mm -hmm. that is always telling them they might not be doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. So they're worried about doing what is right. They want to do it the right way. And it can just be overwhelming to how they make their way through life. And in between that eight and the one is the nine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Holly knows something about a yeah. nine. <laughs> My husband is a nine. Hi, Corey. <laughs> so nines uh, forget what to do in life. Mm -hmm. Just like the sixes are overwhelmed by their thinking and forget about their own faults. And threes forget about their own feelings. The nines, Suzanne says, sometimes forget themselves. So they might know what could be done or even should be done in a situation, but it's hard for them to understand that it could be theirs to do. So if there are multiple options of priorities, really ranking that list can be difficult for a nine. All things seem equal, and sometimes all things seem overwhelming. 
it's not just hard for them to prioritize, but these situations that people are always addressing and responding to, they just want to know, is it really worth that much energy? So the nines are about preserving energy. Uh, they uh, are trying to avoid conflict. They're often labeled the peacemakers, but they're not out trying to create peace in the world. They're just trying to avoid it because of the energy it takes and just not really sure that it's worth all the fuss. Uh, and that's kind of how they make their way through life. So you can kind of see the middle number of each of these triads is kind of a little quirky, but that's my best approach at thinking through the numbers is walking around the Enneagram from the perspective of the three groups of three. Mm -hmm. No, that's wonderful. I think you did a phenomenal job. Thank you. It was a little more than two or three minutes. Yeah, but. <laughs> that's okay. Um, no, that's, that's really good. And I will say, you know, just learning this information, not only for myself, but, you know, you brought up, you know, Wendy and I mentioned Corey, like just being in a relationship and understanding that he sees the world so differently than I do and is motivated by such different things than I am has helped tremendously. It's yeah. been the most influential resource that we've had for our marriage, mm. hands down. Yeah. And not only because she's an eight, uh, but because I'm also a three and threes can be pretty aggressive. We've spent some time in therapy. We've spent some time going at each other. Uh, we've spent some time trying to figure out how to make uh, life work together. But we have a remarkable relationship. Mm -hmm. And the Enneagram, well, I can't say the Enneagram gets credit for it. We get credit for it for mm -hmm. doing the work. The Enneagram is just a tool. Right. It's just That's a right. resource. Yeah. But it is an amazing resource for teaching compassion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it really gives you skills to put that compassion mm -hmm. into work in daily life. Mm -hmm. We respond to each other completely differently because of the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. And we respond to our children differently. Yeah. I mentioned we have two eights. Our middle son, I said, is a four. We think our other son is a one. Mm -hmm. Most of those numbers are, are kind of energetic in some way or another. Those are numbers who are all have this kind of some aggressive component to, to how they respond to life. So there's a lot of energy in our house. <laughs> but we really respond compassionately to our children in ways that we tried to before. But in some ways, we also tried to parent each of them too much the mm -hmm. same way. Mm -hmm. And right. we know that's not that's just not good parenting. You can't parent all your children the same way. But the Enneagram gave us such a unique perspective mm -hmm. and language for how to think about their individual needs mm -hmm. and our individual responses. Yeah. I'm not a patient person. I know that about myself because I don't, I'm not all that tuned into how I feel about things. Mm -hmm. And I'm always looking to the future of what can be done next. And that's just not a healthy way to parent. Mm -hmm. And so the Enneagram has been a great tool to say, John, slow down, mm -hmm. pay attention to how you're feeling this moment. Mm -hmm. And perhaps more importantly, how are your children? Yeah expressing what they need in this moment and how are you paying attention to their feelings. Yeah. Um, and I still by no means do it perfectly. I give myself pep talks every day about today you're going to pay more attention to their feelings. <laughs> but at least I have language now yeah. to understand uh, these challenges and the opportunities to always be strengthening relationships on this faith journey together. Yeah, no, that's so good. Yeah, I... I, I 
would echo that and say that just the amount of grace that I've had for the relationships that I'm in um, with my husband and with my kids and, um, you know, my colleagues and even thinking about my students and, you know, friends and um, it has just helped tremendously to just remind myself that not everyone sees the world in the same way that I do. I can't expect as a two that other people are going to see my needs and meet them in the same way that I'm oriented to want to do that for everybody else around me. Um, and so it's been a beautiful tool just for offering grace again for myself and for others. So, and, and I think the grace for yourself is key. Yeah. I think, you know, it's it's similar to what they say about putting the oxygen mask on in a plane. Yeah. You have to have grace for yourself mm -hmm. to be able to offer it to others. Mm -hmm. And I think the Enneagram is a tool for that. Mm -hmm. And first and foremost, it is a, a tool for yourself. We talk about it as a self-awareness tool. Mm -hmm. And it's sometimes tricky to, to think about self-awareness and on the Christian journey, because we're supposed to be selfless people. Mm -hmm. But I think the only way to truly be selfless on the journey is to know how your personality gets in the way of yeah. you doing that. Right. I think yeah. for too long, I thought, well, if I just don't think about myself, mm -hmm. that's what it means to be the stronger, better, mm -hmm. more uh, loving, caring Christian on the life's journey. Mm -hmm. But then I noticed other people saw things in me that I didn't see in myself. And Enneagram gave me language to, to realize, oh, you know, John, for a social worker and a minister, you're not all that attuned to your feelings. What do you mean I'm not? <laughs> yeah. Can I achieve it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. I'm, I'm achieving yeah. my feelings. I'm, I'm doing feelings yeah. every day. Well, Clearly. No, no, yeah, it took me a while to learn you don't do feelings. You feel them. <laughs> well, I'm not always interested in that. So I have to really be attuned in this kind of introspective, self-reflective kind of way. One of the earliest Enneagram mantras is non-judgmental self-observation. The Enneagram is a tool for non-judgmental self-observation. Uh, it's easy to, to see some of the characteristics that we have in our numbers and to beat ourselves up for it. Well, we have to get past that. Mm -hmm. We can't beat ourselves up for it, but you have to observe it. Mm -hmm. And then we have to learn to, to let it go in some way, to allow the Spirit of God to work within us, mm -hmm. to develop other parts of who God would have us to be. Yeah. And it's only in doing that that we can live the selfless journey we all mm -hmm. desire. Mm -hmm. uh, but in order to do that, you really have to understand yourself, what motivates you, mm -hmm. what drives and compels us mm -hmm. to make the choices we make in life. Mm -hmm. um, but the Enneagram is a tool for yourself first. You can't use it to, to shape others. You right. can use it to influence your family. You can use it to understand your family and respond to them differently, but only once you know yourself. Right. I was doing a training for churches, and one of the participants was just wanted to spend the whole time talking about her spouse and her children and their numbers. And I, and I just said, well, so tell me what your number is. Well, I don't know. I'm either a this or a this or a this. But but my husband, I'm like, no, no, no. Let's let's stop and mm. and just think about yeah. yourself a little bit. Yeah. Um, and that was hard for her. But that's that's kind of what people have to realize about this tool is that it's for yourself first. Yeah. Well, I've got two questions that are kind of coming that I'm thinking of based on what you're mentioning right now. Um, the first would be. 
I'm curious for you to talk a little bit about the role in which we, or the ways in which we move as, I guess I'm going to just combine the questions, the ways in which we move on the Enneagram, because I do know that that's one part of it, in that as we're thinking about ourselves and as we're growing in our spiritual growth and development and formation, that, um, that there are times in our life where we, you know, we have our home base number, um, but that at certain points in our lives or during certain seasons, we may begin to take on different numbers for different reasons. Can you talk a little bit about that and just that the movement that happens in the Enneagram? Right. So it is one of the most dynamic personality tools that we have because of the lines between the numbers. So when you look at the Enneagram, it's the nine points along the outside of the circle, but connecting those points are these random lines. Well, they're not random, they're very strategic, and they've been that way for a couple thousand years. And they really do have meaning related to how we function between different numbers. And really, in some way or another, you're connected to almost every other number on the Enneagram. So your personality is rich and reflective of all these different characteristics. Now, you are one number, and you're that number your whole life, mm -hmm. and you're not changing numbers, but you do take on characteristics of other numbers or exhibit some of the behaviors of other numbers or have some of the energy that we might see in another number. But you will be a two, and I will be a three regardless. However, as a three, I'm situated between the two and the four, and the number on either side of our core number we call the wings. Mm -hmm. And usually in the first half of life, we'll say you have one wing, and then later in life as you develop some balance and learn some skills and other things happen, you kind of develop the other wing, and it, it helps you round out your personality a little bit and helps you develop some different skills for responding to different situations in life, and that's a part of the richness that the Enneagram brings. And that's that's true, we know, just in general life. As people get older and experience more life, they, they can develop this kind of richer, more balanced personality. And and developing your both of your wings is one way that we think about that with the Enneagram. When I was younger, I was a three with a four wing. I was a three who wanted to be successful, but I was also quite dramatic and pretty creative <laughs> and had this flair about everything I did. Well, I can still have that flair for the dramatic, <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm much more relationally focused these days and more attuned to connecting with others in an interpersonal kind of way. And I often say that's my two wing mm -hmm. that showed up somewhere along the way. Well, not only do you have these numbers on either side of you, your wings, but across these lines or arrows on the anagram are two numbers that you need in different situations of life. And some people call them stress numbers or security numbers. They're different names for the numbers. Mm -hmm. I often think of them like the gears in a transmission of a car. Now, in an automatic transmission, the car is shifting gears without us even knowing it. But if you think about a manual transmission, you have to shift the gears. So for me, as a three, I have a line that goes to nine and a line that goes to six. So sometimes when I begin to act 
badly in my number, when I'm not as healthy as I should be in my number, when I'm trying to achieve too much and feeling overwhelmed by not uh, getting the credit I think I deserve, then there are times where I just want to check out. So I kind of demonstrate these nine characteristics where I, I might look like I have some nine energy. Well, sometimes that's problematic in my life, and it's a sign of being overwhelmed and not noticing it. But there are other times where I can see myself beginning to behave that way, and I can just decide, you know, John, you need a break. Spring break is an example of that. One of the privileges of the academic life is we have these seasons off. Mm -hmm. And I really try to take advantage of those, to just step away from the busyness to which I'm often addicted mm -hmm. and say, no, I want to I practice some my energy mm -hmm. and not be so focused mm -hmm. on tasks. Forget about the priorities for just a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that can be a healthy thing for me. Now, the other number that I go to is the number that some writers talk about is the security number, and that's the six. The six is the relational number for me. Sixes at their best are loyal, connected to people in rich and meaningful ways uh, that are attuned to their feelings. And I know at my best, that's what I need and who I can be. So to be my whole self, I need that energy from the six. Now, in unhealthy ways, I can demonstrate some unhealthy characteristics of a six. I can get overwhelmed by options of what to do, and I can take on the anxiety of a six. Mm -hmm. But I can also demonstrate the healthy characteristics of those numbers. And that's true for all of us. We have numbers across our lines. We have numbers next to us. And we're constantly moving yeah. between these numbers, like the gears in a car. So throughout a single day, certainly over the course of a week, I'll have different experiences. Mm -hmm of being a little bit nine, a little bit six, but always a lot three, for better or worse. <laughs> Sometimes we spend long seasons in some of these other numbers. Mm -hmm. A stress number is something you can take on for months and even years at a time. Mm -hmm. uh, if something has really overwhelmed you in life, sometimes we look like uh, one of the other numbers that we're connected to. Mm -hmm. But they're all resources for us uh, in ways that really are unique to the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things that I, I feel like has been really helpful and um, life-giving is being able to um, learn some of those other numbers as well so that I um, can kind of see them as like warning signs yeah. in some ways yeah. um, because I know that like if I am really, really stressed as a two, if I start getting more aggressive and frustrated and angry and and kind of discharge that in some ways onto others and from some of the more unhealthy eight side, then I really know that I've got to do some work. I've got to stop and take care of me and slow down. Um, but I've also learned how I can look to more of the um, higher sides of eight when recognize that there are some qualities that the eight have that I could certainly learn from and adopt, like learning how to say no rather than just saying yes to everyone for everything because I want other people to be happy with me. Um, so those those different numbers have been helpful and thinking about the wings have been helpful too. Um, and, and being reflective about yeah. our personality invites us to make choices about those kinds yes. of things rather than just yeah. being automatic. Right. For most of us, we just automatically behave mm -hmm. in certain ways that are pretty much habitual mm -hmm. and we've done it our whole lives mm -hmm. but knowing the Enneagram gives us a chance to kind of wake up yes. to the ways that our personalities have a grip on us and to yes. be able to say 
I don't have to respond that way. When I get stressed, I don't have to check out. Yeah. I can make a choice to slow down mm -hmm. uh, or prioritize differently before right. I just walk away from something. Right. No, that's so important. So one question that I did have to, um, well, one, I, so I, I remember one of the other things I wanted to ask um, was, what would be your, your greatest recommendation for how others can figure out what their Enneagram number is? Yes, that is an important question. Mainly because I'm not a big fan of the tests. Right, yeah. So the Enneagram is a tool for discernment. Because it is a spiritual resource, it is a resource for discernment. And by and large, we aren't very good listeners in society today. And listening to your life, letting your life speak, as Parker Palmer writes, is not something we're all that equipped for or good at. And the Enneagram is a tool that requires that. Mm -hmm. You can take a test and it can guess what your number is based on some quick responses mm -hmm. to a few dozen questions. But it's hard to do discernment in a 15-minute test. Mm -hmm. So what I say to people who just feel compelled to take a test is take it, but then use the responses over the course of several weeks and months to really reflect on the numbers the tests think you are. Well, and the tests really are measuring behaviors rather than motivations. And some of them try to get at motivations, yeah. but it's still, you really can't yeah. test some of that. Right, right. So... Can I ask you how you figured out your number? Like, uh, do yes. you remember so, figuring? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it, it was by hearing uh, different people talk through their numbers, and it was a group that was doing this process of discernment together. Mm. We didn't have a teacher who knew the Enneagram. We were all reading a book on the Enneagram mm. together, and it's still one of my favorite books, um, Hurley and Donson's uh, Discover Your Soul Potential. Now, Suzanne's book uh, is the best resource for, for learning your number, and the stories she tells in it are quite compelling to help people understand uh, their number. Tell us what the title of the book is. The Road Back to You. Thank you. And she has another one coming out yes, soon, too, right? Yes, and The Path Between Us is her <laughs> new book that's awesome. coming, about, coming out that's focused on the Enneagram and relationships. That's great. And so it doesn't have to be a book. Suzanne has podcasts where she interviews people uh, across the Enneagram types. Mm -hmm. And just hearing people talk about stories within their number really helps you figure out, I just don't see the world that way. Yeah. How can anybody see the world that way? That's not how I'm wired. So that's a good way to rule out a number, and that's discernment. And it might, it might take you a while to figure out, am I really a three or an eight? Am I really a two or a six? And that's okay. Don't be frustrated by that. But just continue to spend some time looking at some of the core motivations, mm -hmm. looking at some of those underlying desires and concerns and struggles that, that the different numbers have. Mm -hmm. The test is a decent way to get started, but reading, listening, uh, having someone talk through the nine numbers in more detail than I just gave, mm -hmm. and, and maybe providing some stories about the numbers mm -hmm. is really the best way uh, to, to figure out 
what your number is. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think too, once you start to get a sense of where those, as you mentioned, there's a line that connects some of those numbers. I remember for me, when I listened to um, the um, CDs that you had loaned me uh, from mm -hmm. Suzanne, right? The Know Your know Number, your number workshop. Um, I remember listening through and hearing the eight and thinking like, yep, I have that. And then going through the numbers and then hearing one and two and three and four. And it was as I went through those and started to hear some pieces that resonated with me, I started to see how those numbers come together as a two, where I go to eight in disintegration or in stress and I go to four in security or integration. And I, I, both of my one and three wings are pretty, on <laughs> for better or for worse right. so but, those are the five numbers right. where you connect the exactly most. so that that was helpful for me and then even now when i hear it you know when i hear someone teach on the two um i know you would come to our church a couple of years ago or a year and a half ago and hearing you even walk through the two it just brought tears to my eyes it's so painful to hear your number so I hate to say that, that that's a way to kind of figure out your number. But when you well, hear a number and it's like, oh, how did you get in my head? How did yes. you know that? Yeah. yeah. It's not StrengthsFinder. No. StrengthsFinder is a great tool, and we use it at Baylor right. to help students with some self-reflection. Mm -hmm. But the Enneagram is a completely different tool because its earliest Christian writings were rooted in the early sins of the church. And every number mm -hmm. has a core sin associated with it. Mm -hmm. And it's because we spend most of our lives in these personalities that represent a struggle where we take a gift God has given us and we've just over-relied on it. Yes. We overuse it. Yes. So twos have this gift of helping people. But when they think every situation in life is an opportunity for them to help someone, yeah. then they miss out on all the opportunities to be helped by others. Yeah. And so we all have a characteristic like that. Mm -hmm. And yep. it's only when you realize that pain of your number and then the opportunity for growth that it presents mm -hmm. because God isn't finished with us yet mm -hmm. and the Enneagram is a tool for that kind of growth, uh, then you really have a better sense of what your number is. That's awesome. Well, John, thank you so much um, for your time today. I really appreciate these opportunities to be thinking about Enneagram and how it's linked to our faith journey, our self-awareness. Um, I know we didn't talk as much about mental health, but um, but I do know that self-awareness is such a critical component to mental health and promoting mental health. And so I just appreciate all the ways that you've woven all this together. If you'd like to connect with Dr. John Singletary, you can find him at John underscore Singletary on Twitter. Um, we're going to include some other opportunities or ways in which you can connect with um, Dr. Singletary in the show notes. Thank you again so much for joining me today, John. Um, is there anything else that you want to add before we wrap up? No, so much fun to get to have this conversation. Thank you awesome. again. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, 
you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.